Good morning, everyone. My name is Erin Cobb, and I have the privilege of helping to coordinate our missions here at Gateway. And if you are a visitor with us this morning, first of all, I want to say thank you. And second of all, I want to say you are in for a very big treat. I am so glad that you are here this Sunday. Because here at Gateway, we worship God. We go up and worship in towards each other in community. And then the third thing we do is out towards our community in service, out towards the world in service. And in our worship services, you get to see those first two clearly, very clearly. We worship. You'll hear that discipleship from Ed in teaching. But this morning, we have a very special treat because we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Christy Eagle, and she is one of the missionaries that we have the privilege of sponsoring. Um, she works with students at Radford University. And so I want to introduce you to Krista Eagle and give her a little bit of a chance to introduce herself. Some of you probably know her. She grew up here at Gateway. But those of you who, like me, didn't grow up at Gateway and have only recently joined the church might not know her as well. So I wanted to give Krista a chance to introduce herself, tell you a little bit about who she is and what she does with students at Radford University. Thanks, Erin. So I grew up at Gateway and went to college and got involved um, in a college ministry and just kind of felt like that was a place where God was doing a lot of things in my heart and I wanted to continue to do that with college students. And so I've actually been in college ministry for the last eight years and it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoy being with college students. It's fun to be interacting with that part of their life when they are coming to school and they're excited and for the first time they're away from home and all the things that they had been raised in and so they're trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be. So it's just exciting that I get to interact with some of those college students. And so yeah, Gateway is a huge, huge part of me being at Radford. I actually have the opportunity to partner with people and ask them to join my team and be part of raising support in order to be on a college campus. And so without Gateway, that would not be possible for me to be at Radford. Well, we are certainly honored that we get to be a partner with you and we get to be involved through you with the things that you're doing and how God is using you at Radford to change the lives of students. So tell us a little bit about some things that happened this year, maybe what was exciting this year, either personally or through ministry, what happened to you? Yeah, so I went to Radford University and then have been in college ministry at Radford since I graduated. And so this year I actually took the role of co-directing at the university with crew. And so that was exciting. There were some challenges that I anticipated and then some I didn't anticipate. We spent a lot of the year persevering in some areas where we maybe didn't expect. And so our ministry looks a lot different than it did four or five years ago. And so God's definitely been on the move. He's definitely been changing lives. And for me personally this year, I watched three of my seniors graduate that I have watched throughout their college time. Three of them I've gotten to disciple and mentor for the last two years. And they are going out to places all over the world and they're excited about it. And so it was a little bit of a bittersweet moment of watching them graduate and seeing them and knowing that they were changed. They were different. They had come into college one way and they were leaving college a totally different person. So. It was exciting to see. I asked them what, what advice they would give them, themselves if they were freshmen again, and they were like, oh, just that we would get involved with a ministry or get involved with a church, get involved somewhere, because God changed who we were four years ago, and we love him now more than we have before. 
So it was really exciting. That is exciting. But I know that ministry doesn't happen for you just because you work on a college campus. That doesn't mean that your ministry ends when the school year ends. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing this summer to prepare for next year's group of freshmen coming in and the things that you have planned for next year. And tell us a little bit about how we can be praying for you this summer and through next year. Yeah. So college ministry is also very fluid. We change every four years. Our ministry next year is going to look different than it did four years ago. And our ministry just continues to change with the different types of students that come in, the different type of people who join our ministry. And so, yeah, you can be praying for the upcoming freshman class. We're excited. We have been strategizing how to reach the campus best and share the gospel. That's our heart, is that students would get to have an opportunity to hear the gospel, but also that they would have an opportunity to get involved with something that is not just, you know, college ordained or sanctioned by the university or just, you know, get involved with whatever's going on. We want to give them an opportunity to maybe get involved with a ministry if they want to. So, so yeah, be praying for those upcoming freshmen. We're excited for them. They're getting ready to graduate. And so this is exciting and this is scary. And it's, yeah, they're getting ready to walk onto this campus that they don't, they don't even know yet. So pray for them. Pray for us as we are shuffling around a little bit. Again, our ministry changed because we've, we, the last couple years have graduated a, a significant amount of students that were in our ministry. And so we are in the process of looking at Radford University and kind of saying, where do we go? Where do we focus our attention, our energy, and, and how do we reach people that need to hear the gospel? And so, yeah, my co-leader and I are just in the midst of trying to do that with our team. And then this summer, I will actually be out in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I get to get trained for this position that I'm in. And so with co-directing a university, there's a lot of things that we have to go through the university. There's a lot of things of thinking through how do you manage 100 students that come to a weekly meeting and small groups that function off of that. And so I get to be trained a little bit more this summer. So for four weeks, I'll be out there. And then for one week, we have an entire conference for all of the staff of crew to come to and it's exciting it's opportunity where 5,000 people are sitting in a room who get to do the same thing I do and so there's vision and calling and excitement but there's also a lot of just celebration of seeing what God's done in our lives but also celebrating the students that we're seeing go out and and share the gospel in their workplaces in the military in schools and college ministry as they go out to share the gospel with the world we get to just celebrate who they are so that's great if you want to learn a little bit more about what Chris is doing at Radford or a little bit more um, specifically about this summer and and how again you can be praying for her or supporting her I encourage you to find Krista after the service and get connected with her and I think you also have email that we could like a yes. newsletter so if there is some other way that's best for folks to get connected with you would you let us know that sure you can definitely find my email i believe i am on the website yes you okay. are <laughs> i was like i think i am yeah so i'm on the website i would love to meet up with you tell you more about my ministry i have so many stories to share about students lives that have changed and how my life has changed dramatically in the last you know, 10 years. And so, yeah, I would love to meet up with you. Um, I'm around a little bit this summer, but I also, Radford's only four hours away. And so I come up pretty frequently because this is a piece of my heart. This is home. My parents are here. So, yeah. Well, we are certainly glad that you were able to be here this week and to share with us a little bit. And if you don't mind, I'm going to ask Gateway if you will pray with me for Krista right now. Uh, join with me in prayer.
Father God, we come to you with humble hearts that you've taken someone like Krista and instilled in her such a passion for youth through her life here at Gateway and learning more about you and, and learning how to love you and learning about the gospel here at Gateway, Lord, and that she wanted to share that with others and make that a full-time part of her life. God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to partner with her, and we pray that you would continue to give us the wisdom to understand how to be supporting her financially and personally. But God, we know that you are Jehovah Jireh. You are God the provider. And so we pray that you would provide for her this next year, um, that you would provide for her this summer as she goes out to Fort Collins and receives training, Lord, that that training would be foundational to the things that you have planned for her to do this next year. Um, we pray that you would provide financially for her so that she can continue to minister to students and not be concerned about the support that she needs to raise. We pray that you would give her the resources personally and spiritually for all of the things that you have planned for her to do, God. We thank you that you have given her an opportunity to take Jesus into places where he doesn't normally get to show up and be involved in the lives of students and through the connections that she's able to make and how she's able to pour into the lives of others um, your gospel, that, that she gets to see that change in them, and then she gets to send them out into the world to be salt and light and to be change agents in the world for you so that they can continue to take the gospel out and just multiply the things that you are doing and the things that you have started at Radford University. God, we thank you so much for Krista and what she's doing. We pray that you would continue to do that work in her and also in us, God. We ask this so that you would receive glory and honor in all of the earth. Amen. When I was young, I learned a little children's limerick. Some of you may have learned it as well or may have heard it. Some of you have heard it from me over the years. Here's the church. My hands are folded with their fingers interlocked and the fingers are on the inside. I'm saying this to someone who's listening later. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, and there's the people. <laughs> it's completely ridiculous that somebody would clap for that. Over time I learned how misleading that is. In fact, dangerously so. What I'd like for us to talk about today is what should our relationship to the church be? A lot of us have a sense that Gateway is going to be changing some over the next months, especially this fall. We're moving into a new building. Yes. For those of you who are visiting, thanks for coming. If you go out to Gum Spring, take a left out toward 50, that new construction right before you get to 50, that's, that's our building. It's our facility that God is raising up through us and for us. Our grand opening will be September 10th. So if you miss every other Sunday, don't miss that one, September 10th. And uh, we have a sense that we will be able to much more effectively invite the area into our home. So it's really, really important for us to figure out what home is. So what should our relationship to the church be? What should our connection be like, and why does it matter? You know, we live in a strange age. On the website sociallyup.com, you can buy, I got to make sure I'm right, 
500 Facebook likes for $30. I'm serious. You can buy 20,000 Facebook likes for $700. FanMeNow.com will find you 1,000 Twitter followers for $10. And for $1,750, $1,750, some of you are going to want to take this down, FanMeNow will get you a million Twitter followers. But these instant friends have not diminished the need for real connection, real community. Fifteen years ago, I've quoted it here before a number of times, a large survey conducted by UC Davis asked three generations, the predominant generations at that point, uh, to list their priorities. Builders, who are essentially my parents. Boomers, that's me and all the other old people like me. And busters, those of you who are, I guess at this point, under... 50 at this point, or is it it's probably higher than that? It's probably 52 or 53. We had vastly different lists of priorities, these three generations. There was only one thing that appeared on the top five priority of all three generations. Community. Interestingly, the, the only priority that appeared on all three. A 2016 article by Dhruv Kalar in the New York Times he marshaled a huge amount of social science research and data demonstrating that for Gen Xers and Millennials, they have followed suit. They also list community as one of their, or you also list community as one of your top five priorities. We know that deep human connection makes us healthier. For example, when we're engaged in meaningful community, we live longer and we report being happier. So it's important for us to remember that community is what the church is. It's our best thing. It's the main thing we do. So what's our relationship to the church supposed to be? All right, to set up the answer, I want to spend some moments. This will threaten to be boring for some of you, but hang in there. I want to spend some moments picking apart those first two verses that we read together. It's just an incredibly rich passage and we read it responsibly this morning. We'll look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to pick them apart. And then we're going to do a high-level summary of 3 through 8. And I think get knocked out by one really important walk-away point that I don't want you to forget. All right, so Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'm going to read it again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So this passage is critically important, I think, for at least a couple of reasons. Number one, it is the culmination of everything that Paul has said up to this point in his letter to the Romans. So the first 11 chapters are ending, and he has laid out for us some of the most titanic theology anywhere. And then at the end of it, he says, therefore, in view of everything I've just said. Secondly, this gives us a brief, high-level summary of what our lives as Christ followers are supposed to be about. This is why so many people over the years have advocated memorizing these two verses, because this is key. 
So first of all, this is the summary of what Paul has laid out so far in chapters uh, 1 through 11. So let's do that real quick. Here's what Paul has talked about so far. For those of you who are keeping score at home, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he told us that sin is a lethal spiritual cancer that affects every aspect of our lives, and it completely disqualifies us from a connection with God. And he is completely clear that sin affects everyone and everything, emphasis on everyone. Then in chapters 4 and 5, he reminds us that trusting God with our lives and our futures addresses this sin problem head on, but that it has to be an informed faith. The dissonance and distance created between ourselves and God happens because of our sin, and it has been overcome and silenced by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and that's where we must place our faith. Then in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he acknowledges that we are sometimes still a mess, even though this has happened, but that we are truly free, free from our mess, free from the centripetal force that pulls us into our mess because of what God has done through Christ. Then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we are told all of this happened because of grace. It's God's work solely and completely. It's not our work. It's not our cleverness. It's not our effort. It's based on the grace and mercy of God. And then he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, do this. In other words, chapters 1 through 11 is a systematic laying out of the whole truth about our connection with God. Then the first two verses of chapter 12 is a high-level summary of what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live in light of that and because of that. All right, if we amplified the first sentence of chapter 12, verse 1, with all of the shades of meaning that are suggested by the verbs, it would read something like this. I urge you to continually place your very selves at God's disposal as a sacrifice, living, holy, pleasing to God. And by living, he means as, as fully alive, the abundance that Jesus talked about. Holy, he means both in terms of this, the sense of being set apart for God's purposes, but also morally pure and pleasing to God as in being the kind of sacrifice that God would desire. One of the great New Testament scholars of the 20th century is a man named C.E.B. Cranford. He was a professor at a theological school in Britain. He comments on these verses, and he says, the implication of these words is that those who receive this exhortation are no longer to be their own, but wholly God's property. And then this sentence I want you to see. Dean's going to put it on the screen. Thus, the Christian, I'm still quoting C.E.B. Cranford, the Christian, already God's by right of creation and by right of redemption, has yet again to become God's by virtue of her own surrender of herself. And this self-surrender has, of course, to be continually repeated. Okay, so go to the next slide, Dean. Paul concludes his thought like this. This is your true and proper worship. What we've just talked about, this is your true and proper worship. The word translated there, true and proper, is the Greek word logikos. It's, in some settings, this word can mean spiritual, and some English translations take it that way, but the primary meaning of the word is reasonable, rational, belonging to the real nature of a thing. So I think the NIV translation that we had on the screen got it right here. I believe what Paul is saying is that worship for us, real worship, looks like a thoroughly thought through, and reasonable obedience to what God wants for our lives, and it's based on what God has done for us. I'm going to say that again. Worship for us. Real worship, stay with this, 
looks like a thoroughly thought through and reasonable obedience to what God wants for our lives, and it's based on what God has done for us. Our worship is lived out every day in all of our choices. So worship is not just a feeling that we get about God. Worship is an everyday affair. Although the feelings that we get about God and from God is a wonderful consequence of a life of worship, our worship is a thoroughly thought through obedience to what God wants for our lives, and it's based on what God has done in our lives. So let's take a moment and practice, if you would. We're going to pause in the middle of our conversation this morning, and we're going to pray. And I want you, if you would, for this prayer, I want you to repeat after me. So whatever it is that you do to focus, let's close our eyes. You can do one of these. You don't get in yoga lotus position, but you don't have the space to do that. But just focus, and let's do a bit of practice right now on what he's talking about. And let's pray together. I'll say a phrase, and you repeat it silently after me. I am yours, God. That is your desire. And it is decidedly what is best for me. I give myself to you. I give my thoughts to you. I give my effort and energy to you. I give my body to you. Flow through me to others. Make me aware of when I need to speak on your behalf and give me wisdom to supply those times with your grace and your purity. Make me aware of when my plenty will fill in for someone's lack and give me your heart to offer it freely without strings. Help me to be with and for others, not for myself. Primarily for those who belong to you and also those who do not. Meet their needs through me as you always and everywhere meet my needs. For the sake of your Son and my Savior, Jesus Christ, and in his name. Amen. Now, when we go out and live that prayer, that is true and proper worship. Then Paul rolls into verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Greek scholars tell us that the tenses involved at the beginning of verse 2 are critically important, and I usually don't remember enough grammar to even know one tense from another. So here's a quick survey for you guys to, uh, as a reminder. In the present tense, I might say... I know Diane, my wife. In the past tense, I would say, I knew Diane. And in the perfect tense, I would say, I have known Diane since 1980. I was six when we met. Sometimes the tense of a verb shades the meaning in a very important direction. So again, 
we turn to C.E.B. Cranford. He puts it this way, quote, We may bring out the force of the tense by translating the phrase at the beginning of verse 2, Stop allowing yourselves to be conformed. Continue to let yourselves be transformed. It's a process. The transformation has to be continually repeated, or rather, it's a process which has to go on, and this is C.E.B. Cranford again, it is a process which has to go on all the time the Christian is in this life. This is the essence of what we are supposed to do. This is what our lives are about. Again, high-level summary. Hey, follower of Christ, this is what your life is supposed to be about. This is what you do. So, To what pattern are we to stop allowing ourselves to be conformed, Paul? And Paul answers, to the things of this world, he says. So I want to offer a quick list of things that belong to this world and the way Paul is thinking about it to give us a clearer sense of what he means. So here are some things that are under the category of belonging to this world in Paul's mind. Number one, Disney vacations. Nordstrom's. And everything Nordstrom sells and everybody who sells to Nordstrom's, Netflix, kitchen countertops, basketball shoes, in fact, all sports store paraphernalia, CNN and Fox News, bedroom furniture, youth sports travel teams, all college majors, skinny jeans, in fact, all jeans, dollar bills and all forms of money, and we can make a very, very long list. In other words, by this world, Paul means the cultural forces that press on us from all sides, from the arenas of fashion and entertainment and all media and all opinions and views other than God's. These are the things to which we should not allow ourselves to be conformed. Now, wait a minute. These are not all bad things. That's not the suggestion. For instance, Disney vacations, not a bad thing at all if you can afford it, but we cannot allow our lives to be formed by these things. These cannot be the things that shape our lives or our opinions or our views. Instead, we are to allow ourselves to be transformed. We are to be changed, and and the word transformed, it's the Greek word from which we get our word metamorphosis. We are to be changed from an overly worried, overly angry, overly defensive, overly self-involved, overly greedy, overly controlling caterpillar into a loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, faithful, and self-controlled butterfly. And how does this transformation happen? According to Paul, it happens by the renewal of our minds. I want you to make note. The word renewing here is a noun, not a verb. This is sometimes translated to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. I think this reinforces the idea that what happens to us is primarily God's activity. I'm going to say that again. What happens to us is primarily God's activity. The work in us is God's work. It is a work to which we must actively submit, no doubt. But Paul doesn't think of this renewing as something which his readers can accomplish for themselves. This renewing is the Spirit's work in us. At the same time, we have to remember that we are not just passive observers of this work. We share the responsibility and the burden of it in that we yield ourselves freely to the Spirit's leading in our lives. In other words, God's Spirit does the work, but we must yield to the working. And finally, we should ask, what's the result of this work? If we are able to resist conformity to this world, and if we're able to allow the Spirit's work in us, what is the result? We will know God's will. 
We will be in sync with God's work in the world and in our lives. Little by little, decisions will come more easily and will be made more effectively for us as we see and understand more clearly God's will. Relationship-damaging habits and activities will present themselves less and less as our go-to interactions with other people. In short, we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Period. End of Sermon 1. Now, epic question. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. Don't miss this. Then, Paul begins to lay out some specific applications of this general way of living, this general high-level guideline. And where does he begin? Where does Paul first turn his attention as a first priority? This is what you're to do as somebody who's turned your life over to Jesus Christ. Something has happened. Something revolutionary has happened inside of you. And and you're to be the kind of person who's not allowing themselves to be conformed to a certain pattern of the way the world thinks about things. You're to allow yourselves to be transformed by God's spiritual work in you as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Then what? Where does Paul begin? Not with general relationship principles, even though these are very important, and he gets to that. Not with government, even though he addresses government. Not with marriage and family, or health, or business relationships, all critical topics, all topics he deals with in other places. He begins with the church. That's the first thing he addresses. Now, he doesn't use the word church, but make no mistake, this is his topic. He's addressing how we should function together as a first order of business. Listen. For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, and and some translators will say there are a lot of ways for him to have said each of you or every one of you, but he does it in this way most emphatically. One commentary has suggested really this should be translated, for by the grace given to me, I say to each and every one of you, I want you to hear this. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given to each of you, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Look, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us, so... If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouragement, by all means, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We should, first of all, think rightly about ourselves because We can never be in this connection and be rightly in this connection unless we're thinking rightly about ourselves. And then, we think that way because we belong to one another. We are literally part of one another. Finally, right? 
the real emphasis? Each of us should do our thing. You're not going to be rightly aligned until you do. Now, why does Paul address the church first? Well, he doesn't specifically answer that question, but I want to offer at least a couple of observations about this. Why does he make this a first-order priority in laying out how we should live? Why does this come to his mind first? I'm going to suggest to you, first of all, he says this because the church is the hope of the world. It's not family. Family is critically important to my and your emotional health, but it's not family. Government is not the hope of the world. Obama was not the key to hope and change. And Donald Trump cannot make America great again. Government is not the hope of the world. The church of Jesus Christ is. I saw a note this week from a friend of mine who pastors a church, and he did a little retreat, a mini local retreat. They didn't go anywhere, but for people who work with their children's ministry. And he got them all together and he said, tell me why, from your perspective, give me an explanation of why the church is the hope of the world. And especially as it relates to our children's ministry. So he got a lot of answers, but the one that knocked him out was uh, this. How do I know the church is the hope of the world? I see it in my own life. In my testimony. In the living testimony of my family. When I came to this church, I came alone as a single parent, unchurched, non-believer, invited by a friend of my mother's, never married, living in a mess of a life. Slowly God moved in my life as I sat here week in, week out, just listening and just thinking. God came into my heart and then radically changed it. My child's father, name omitted, and I began to attend together and really date, and then within a year we were married. The first time I ever read the Bible was in response to a take-home from the kids' program. The first time my husband and I prayed together was in response to a prompting from my husband brought on by a message we'd just heard at church. The first time we served together was in response to a message we heard at church. The first time we committed our lives together to Christ as a family, for him to truly be the leader in response, was in response to a message we heard at church. More recently, the decision to give what in reality is our entire weekend to the cause of Christ through the building of his church at a new location that was all in response to a message that we heard at church. We started a small group this way. I was baptized this way, invited our friends this way, and the list could go on and on. God works through the church. How do I know I live it? The church is the hope of the world. I think there's maybe at least a second reason why he, he thinks of church first. I honestly believe. Hang on to this one. Because if we get this right, then it brings all other priorities into right alignment. If we are operating effectively and fully within our church, then all other operations are elevated and benefited. If we are operating effectively and fully within our church, then all other operations are elevated and benefited. Krista Eagle grew up in our church from the time she was in the fifth grade. Yeah, she was a little kid and cute as a button. And she still is. And Tim and Terry were a part of our core group. And those of you who are part of Gateway, you know Tim and Terry because they do everything. They always have. So from the time we first started Gateway, every activity, every cleanup, every setup, everything we did, 
Tim and Terry were there, dragging James and Krista. And Krista's life bears the imprint of that, of that sacrifice. Krista is who she is because of that, because they were always there. If we're operating effectively and fully within our church, then all other operations are elevated and benefited. Remember, this is important. I'm not talking about church activity, for those of you who are trying to bail on what I'm saying. I'm talking about church life. I'm talking about a network of relationships within which we live and invest and grow and serve and outreach. Honestly, almost... I'm sorry, how many times have I said this now? Don't miss this. Almost all of us have a church, a church that we are completely devoted to. It's just that in some of our cases, our real church is not a Christian church. But almost all of us have a community of people to which we are devoted, to which we give our highest priority and our most time. This is mostly true even for hyper-independent suburbanites. So it is to people exactly like us that Paul urges and exhorts us to step in with all that we are and with all that God is doing in our lives. Step in and give yourself among my people, Paul says. Step in and be counted. With that in mind, let me ask an interesting question. Can you give too much time to church? Hold on. I would say the answer is no. Now, you can give too much time to church activity, but if church is really a network of relationships that you surround yourself with, within which you live and serve and love, then the answer has to be no. I'm not playing with semantics here. As, as we begin to deny the impact of the world on our thinking, instead allow ourselves to be transformed, we will more and more be brought to think of ourselves this way. And as we orient our thinking this way, we will more and more experience all that God has for us. To the degree that we hold ourselves back, keep our distance, protect our control, protect our independence, or whatever else we're thinking we're protecting, then to that to degree, God's activity is limited in us. So what should our relationship to the church be like? Is it like a chair to a kitchen table? It adds both look and function. It completes the set, but it can also act as a separate piece with someone to sit in the den. Is it like red paint mixed with white paint to become pink paint? Red and white are mostly lost, but they become something different and, to some people, something better. Now, I would suggest it's like an arm and a shoulder, intimately connected, vital to one another, ineffective without one another, yet distinct, utter unity in true diversity. Here is a facility that Gateway Community Church is a building across the street, and it's stinking beautiful. <laughs> Here is a cool-looking, blocky thing on top of it that has a subtle piece of glasswork in it that 
demonstrates a cross. Thank you, Jan. Open the door, and there's the church. Us. Let's pray. Father, as a first matter of business this morning, we yield ourselves to you. We submit to your work because it's good. I want to pray this morning, Lord, for those who have a work in your life that includes prophecy. They are able to speak your word to others, and we want to listen. I pray, God, they will speak. We need it. For those here, Lord, who have the kind of personality and your work in their life in such a way that it includes teaching, Father, we are so often confused. I pray that they will teach For those here, Lord, who have leadership on their lives, God, we know what leaders are like. If they're not stepping in, then they're critical. I pray they would lead with diligence. I pray that they would see what needs to be done at Gateway and take that up, not as a criticism, but as an action item. Father, for those here who have gifts of mercy, oh, Lord, thank you. Strengthen them to carry our burdens. Because, Lord, the tendency is to just get so burned out, and I pray that they would be able to be merciful with cheerfulness. Lord, for those here who are encouragers, some of us, Lord, are tired, and some of us are weak, and some of us cannot see to the end, and I pray that the encouragers would encourage and strengthen us so we can keep going. Lord, we multiply that list out to every one of us. Father, we acknowledge this morning that no one is here today by accident. I pray in the name of Jesus that we would be counted in in the work that you're about to do among us. That we would move in. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said...